Reading today comes from the book of 1 Kings, chapters 18 and 19. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a, message, a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning again. It's a real joy to be with you here today. Um, Andrew mentioned, but I was a pastoral resident, and I left here about six years ago. Hard to believe it's been six years. Uh, But as I look out into the crowd, uh, it's really fun for me to see faces that I recognize and uh, some new faces as well. So uh, joy to be with you here today. As Andrew mentioned, I get the pleasure to work with Tom Nelson, your senior pastor, on a weekly basis as we help churches connect Sunday faith uh, to their congregation's Monday work. And one of the topics of conversation that comes up fairly uh, regularly is how pastors can encourage entrepreneurs and those who are starting new businesses in their congregation. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but starting your own business is kind of in vogue right now. It's kind of uh, hip. There's lots of uh, podcasts and, and different TV shows that talk about this. Here are a few of my favorites. Um, I love the podcast, How I Built This, with Guy Raz. Uh, once a week, they tell the story of a different entrepreneur and their story of the business they built and all the ups and downs. Uh, one of the original ones I got hooked on was a podcast called Startup. Uh, And again, exploring uh, some of the same themes there. Maybe some of you aren't into podcasts. You're more, uh, you watch TV or something like that. Uh, There's this show that's been going on for eight seasons. Have you seen this show, Shark Tank? This is where entrepreneurs come and they pitch their business ideas to this shark tank, these uh, investors that get to practice the art of the pitch. And uh, very popular. I could mention the rise of uh, the Etsy shop. And this is where stay-at-home parents are building up their side hustle uh, to bring in a little extra income. A recent report, a recent report showed that 550,000 people in America start a new business every month. 550,000 a month. But of course, as you probably know, 
starting a business is not all glamorous. About 50% of new businesses don't reach their fifth anniversary. They fail in those first five years. And even for the ones that succeed, that make it through that five-year mark, for them, usually they hit significant, uh, very difficult challenges along the way, major speed bumps. It could be a loss uh, of a, a major client that they were hoping for and they need uh, to stay in the business. Uh, it could be a fierce competition from another business. But whatever it is, it can place enormous stress, enormous anxiety and pressure uh, on the founders. I recently read that uh, depression and anxiety run rampant among startup founders because of all the weight that they carry. In fact, there's, there's actually uh, a term that some entrepreneurs have coined uh, for what this experience, this emotional low point, uh, is like. They call it the trough of sorrow. Have you heard about this? The trough of sorrow. It comes after there's this initial excitement and rise of the product or service. But then these speed bumps come and it starts to go down and down and it looks like everything might fail. They might lose everything. I recently talked uh, to a friend who goes here to Christ Community Church and he started a business and it's done very well by all, uh, by all you know, the, the imaginations I talked to him. Uh, but he says this year he's been in the trough of sorrow. Even though he's got lots of employees, he's had a couple clients that haven't paid him. They haven't paid up when they said they were going to. And it's put incredible pressure on their financial reserves. They don't know if they're going to have to lay off employees. They don't know if it'll ever come in. He's in the trough of sorrow. He said, you go from feeling like I'm the smartest guy I know to this could be a total failure. And back and forth. Now, I know when I talk to a crowd this big, there's probably some of you here today that have either started a business or you will start a business, uh, and you may know all about the trough of sorrow. But I also suspect that this concept doesn't just apply to entrepreneurs. Most of us, sooner or later, will find ourselves in the trough. It's when it seems like nothing can be done to fix things, whatever it is. It's when our minds swirl with near constant anxiety and distraction about a struggle and it's, it's like a weight we carry with us wherever we go. We might even feel strangely alone even if we're surrounded by other people. It might become hard to focus or even know what we should do next. It's the trough of sorrow. Maybe some of us are in the trough even here this morning. You came in and there's songs and I'm talking up here but it's pretty much just a big fog. Others of us know someone there. It could be a close friend. It could be a relative. It could be a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor. You might not even know all the details of your life. You just know that right now they're there. This all raises profound questions for people of faith, as well as those of us here today who might be exploring faith or are unsure about what we believe. Questions like, where is God in the midst of the trough? And is the experience itself a sign that God has left us or that he's somehow disappointed with us? Some of us might even ask, can a mature Christian find themselves in the trough of sorrow or should they be bulletproof? Kind of above that. Is it a sign of spiritual immaturity if we're there? Well, today we continue our series with us. And we find that our main character, Elijah, 
has hit his own personal trough of sorrow. Elijah's story paints a profound picture of what the trough can look like and how God, even amidst that low place, is caring for us in the midst of that. And by the way, even if by some stretch of luck or temperament we could avoid the trough as we walk the gauntlet of life, I can guarantee you about 100% of us will be close to someone who's walking through it. So I invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. As I alluded to, uh, we've been walking with the story of Elijah this summer. And Elijah, you'll remember, was a prophet in the Old Testament during one of the darkest times in Israel's history. Uh, Israel had rejected Yahweh and they were starting to serve and worship Baal uh, or Baal. And Baal um, demanded odd things from his worshipers that were pretty dark. He demanded abuse, mutilation, and some co- in some cases, child sacrifice. So this was some pretty dark stuff. And it was dark because God's own people, Israel, who's supposed to be set apart, was engaging uh, in these activities. So Elijah was in the middle saying, Israel, come back. Come back to the true God. Leave your Baal worship behind. If you haven't read the story, uh, the culmination came last week in chapter 18 of 1 Kings. If you haven't read that story, I invite you to, or I encourage you to go and, and check it out sometime. But for our purposes here this morning, I just want to recap a few of the highlights uh, so we kind of uh, lead up to the narrative today. The scene was a great showdown between Elijah on one side and 450 prophets of Baal. So, Look around, that's about how many people are here today, 450 of us, 450 prophets of Baal. I'm not calling you prophets of Baal, but that's that's about how big the the group was. Uh, And Elijah on the other side. The face-off was to determine who is the real God. Was it Yahweh or was it Baal? And there was a challenge that each was given a bull. Elijah was given a bull and the people were giving a bull. And they had to prepare a sacrifice on the altar. They both would call out to their respective God and who could ever bring fire down from heaven. That was the true, real God. Now, I don't know if you're like me, that might kind of sound weird. Like, why would you pray for God to send fire down? That seems very random and unlikely. But keep in mind that Baal is the storm God. He doesn't just bring the rain, he brings the thunder, he brings the lightning. If Baal can do anything, he should be able to light an altar on fire with some lightning. Isn't this kind of in his wheelhouse? So Elijah is meeting almost Baal on his own terms in this challenge. The 450 prophets of Baal there take their bull, they put it on the altar, and they all begin shouting and yelling out to Baal, Baal, hear us, hear us, O Baal. And hour after hour after hour after hour goes by, nothing happens. They begin doing things like cutting themselves, trying to get Baal's attention, but nothing happens. Finally, it's Elijah's turn. He steps up and he does something that's very strange, very strange. He says, I've prepared the altar, but I want you to get some water. Bring four buckets of water. And they drench the sacrifice. And they said, four more buckets of water, actually. You know what? Make it four more. Twelve buckets of water on the sacrifice so that there was water all around the trench. And then without any heroics, no fanfare, he simply prays, 
O God in Israel, reveal yourself today that you are the true Lord. Show yourself that you are turning the hearts of your people back to you and come and meet us. And I don't know if it was a moment or a minute later, but we're told that fire comes down from heaven and it consumes the altar and licks up all the water around it. The people in the grandstands behind, all the people of Israel, yell out with one voice, the Lord is God, the Lord is God, and they bow down in their faces to him. Now, we might have imagined um, that Elijah, after this, would probably go to the after party. Um, maybe some sort of celebration. I guess he is a prophet, maybe like a worship service or something. But he doesn't do that. Instead, after all this commotion, he runs ahead to a city. And that's where our narrative picks up today. Chapter 19, verse 1. It says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. We've been in this series uh, for the past four weeks. We haven't heard much about Jezebel. Uh, We've heard about King Ahab. We've heard about Elijah. Uh, But Jezebel is the chief villain in this this scene. Even if you don't know much about Jezebel, even her name kind of suggests what she's up to, doesn't it? Jezebel seems like she's up to no good. I don't think I've ever met a Jezebel before in my life. Anyone keeping that on their short list of baby names uh, that they've got? In these first two lines, you get the feeling that even though King Ahab is technically on the throne, he really answers to his wife. She's the real power behind the kingship. Ahab doesn't know what to do. He comes in whimpering to his wife, and she responds, but she isn't scared. Jezebel is enraged. This isn't a reason to fear. This is a reason to enact judgment and vengeance on Elijah. Her husband had obviously been too weak need to take care of him. Now she was going to have to take things into her own hands. We heard the message that she gave. Make sure that we do to Elijah what he did to those prophets. There were probably a bounty on his life and wanted posters all over the land. But you know, and I know, that Jezebel doesn't know who she's dealing with here. This is Elijah. This is probably the most famous prophet in all the Old Testament. He isn't scared by threats. He's not scared by 450 prophets of Baal. What could a lame threat from one person possibly do? We want to say, go get her, Elijah. Verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Wait, what? What? wait a second, Elijah, what happened? This this doesn't make sense. What's different this time? Can't you just do that thing that you did yesterday when you called fire down from heaven? Do, Do that again. As the text continues, it gets worse. Look at verse 3b. When he, Elijah, came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. 
Wow. Elijah had hit rock bottom. We might have been assumed that he would be riding a spiritual high with adrenaline in his veins. Instead, he's a mess. And now he's completely alone. He's overcome with fear and anxiety at this threat from Jezebel. Sometimes God's people are racked with despair. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can make these Bible characters out to be larger than life. But Elijah was a man. He was a human. Sometimes he probably experienced back pain. Maybe once in a while he had acid reflux. He probably stubbed his toe from time to time. He was a prophet, not an otherworldly superhero. He got hungry and tired and discouraged and disillusioned. That place that Elijah is in might seem pretty extreme, pretty rare. But actually, as you read the Bible, it's more common than you might think. Here are some characters in the Bible who said similar things. Moses said, if this is how you're going to treat me, God, please go ahead and kill me. Jeremiah said, cursed be the day I was born. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Job said, oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut off my life. David prayed, my tears have been my food day and night. Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Jonah said, now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And in case we thought this was a particular malady of Old Testament people, Paul in the New Testament says this in the book of 2 Corinthians. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. These are spiritual giants who nonetheless came to moments of despair, fear, and exhaustion. They wanted to give up. In other words, spiritual maturity doesn't mean that you will avoid despair. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever known someone who's felt like that? Many of us by now uh, are familiar with the story of Mother Teresa, and uh, she's long been looked at as someone who served the poor and gave selflessly of her life to those who are poor and struggling in India. Uh, But the news came out a few years ago, you probably saw this, that uh, in her journal through many years, she was actually uh, experiencing deep turmoil and emotional distress. Here are some of the things that she wrote in her journal. To a friend, she wrote, Jesus has a very special love for you. As for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see Listen and do not hear. To a different friend at another occasion, she said, said, please pray specifically for me that I might not spoil his work and that our Lord may show himself for there is such terrible darkness within me as if everything was dead. It has been like this more or less from the time I started the work. And if the example of a Catholic nun doesn't do the trick, I could point to the Protestant reformer Martin Luther gave his life to bringing people back to faith in Christ alone and saw many people come to faith in Christ. 
And yet he, almost throughout his entire life, experienced severe bouts with depression and discouragement. What are we to make of that? I can't here even begin to explain the mysteries and complex reasons why some of us experience varying levels of difficulty and soul-searching challenge in our lives. I'd be a fool even to try. There might be a thousand reasons, uh, most of which I'll never be able to discern, but I've often been taken back and sobered by something C.S. Lewis once said on this very subject. He said, does God then forsake just those who serve him best? Well, he who served him best of all said, here's his tortured death, why hast thou forsaken me? When God becomes a man, that man of all others is least comforted by God at his greatest need. There's a mystery here which, even if I had the power, I might not have the courage to explore. Meanwhile, little people like you and me, if our prayers are sometimes granted beyond all hope and probability, had better not draw hasty conclusions to our own advantage. If we were stronger, we might be less tenderly treated. If we were braver, we might be sent with far less help to defend far more desperate posts in the great battle. See, Elijah had been given an assignment in a particularly desperate post in the great battle. Some of you here have as well. It had taken its toll on him physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. It wasn't a sign of spiritual immaturity. It was a mark that he had been called to a difficult post. And if we learn nothing else from his example, it should be that it's okay, it's even right and good to call out to God out of the depths of our emotions to be honest with him and pour out our hearts to him even when we're at the bottom. This all raises an interesting set of questions. Where was God in all this? He had shown up to display his power to 450 prophets of Baal. Now would he do anything, one single thing, uh, for his servant Elijah? Our story continues. In verse 5, it says, Then he, that's Elijah, lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Did you see what happened there? An angel, a messenger of God himself, appears to Elijah. But did you notice what didn't happen? The angel doesn't say, Elijah, what's your deal? Don't you trust God? The, The angel didn't say, Elijah, you are so pathetic. Don't you remember your Torah memory verses? That you're supposed to be strong and courageous? The angel doesn't over-spiritualize Elijah's condition. Elijah didn't need a sermon or a heavy-handed admonishment. He needed some food. He needed some rest. That's what the angel did. Think of it. God sent a messenger to give Elijah toast and aquafina and let Elijah take a nap. And then the angel did the same thing a second time. By the way, this is remarkably similar with what I do with my 21-month-old daughter, Olivia, when she's fussing and flailing all about, falling on the ground. Usually we say, well, it's time for a snack and a nap. Little applesauce and night-night, that should do the trick. 
God gives Elijah a snack and a nap. God knows what his children need. He knows that we're embodied creatures and that our minds and the chemistry in our bodies and our emotions and what we're going through, it's all connected. He created us after all. I don't want to rush over this. This is truly profound. God doesn't instantly heal Elijah, although he could have in a moment. He could have just said, be healed. He prescribes natural means to care for Elijah. There are lots of miraculous stories in these many chapters, but here, bread and water are the means of God's compassionate care. Theologians have reflected on this, and they've discerned that God often uses natural means to meet our most pressing needs. And this often comes through the daily work of people. Our vocations become what Martin Luther called the masks of God. It's often our daily work, whether paid or unpaid, that's a mask of God. God is the one behind it who's at work. Here's what Martin Luther said. He said, God could easily give you grain and fruit without your plowing and planting, but he does not want to do so. What else is all our work to God, whether in the fields, in the garden, in the city, in the house, in war, or in government, but such a child's performance by which he wants to give his gifts in the field, at home, and everywhere else. These are the masks of God behind which he wants to remain concealed and do all things. So make the bars and gates and let him fasten them. Labor and let him give the fruits. Eat and drink and let him nourish and strengthen you, and so on. In all our doings, he is to work through us, and he alone shall have the glory for it. Do you see the God who cares for you behind the regular work of everyday people? We can mention those whose work involves bringing us food every day. Farmers who produce food. Truck drivers who bring the food to the market. Grocers who stock the shelves with food. Mothers and fathers who come home and cook meals that nourishes us. Dietitians who determine the right foods that we should be eating for our bodies. We could also mention those whose work is to bring us rest. Those who study sleep disorders. Those who sell mattresses. Employers who provide vacation time. App makers who have that little white noise app, which by the way, I use every single night. We could mention those whose work brings about mental health, whether counselors or psychologists, and yes, even pastors. All of these vocations are the masks of God, and there are a thousand more. Ways that God is meeting our most basic needs. So if you're in a dark place today, hear me say loud and clear, it is good and right for you to pursue natural means by which God can be at work in your life. Time spent with a good counselor. A conversation with a dietitian about what food could best sustain you and serve you. Work with an exercise trainer uh, who can get your body healthy. An appointment with a sleep specialist. Life with a church community, maybe a, a community group who can give you support and care. This text makes it clear that God cares for our bodies and he has created natural means to help us. There's something else, though, in this text that demonstrates God's tender care for his children. And it's almost so obvious, I, I hesitate to mention it, but, but I will. 
The text said that the angel appears to Elijah, which means that God was watching. God saw this whole thing going down. He had his eye on Elijah. He saw everything he was going through. God saw and he continues to see. I mentioned that we have a 21-month-old daughter, uh, Olivia, and since it's the 21st century and technology as it is, we have a sleep monitor. And it's a camera in Olivia's room that points down to her crib, and then we've got the live feed that we can take anywhere with us. And uh, we'll put Olivia down at night and and just sometimes watch her. Uh, And usually she sleeps like a baby. Um, She is a baby after all. But sometimes she gets up in the night. She'll look around and it's dark. She's confused. She starts to cry. Sometimes she'll start to scream. She'll look at the door and I wonder if she wonders how far away we are or if we can even hear her. She probably assumes no one sees her. But all the while, usually my wife and I are looking at the screen as she stands and cries. We usually debate, should we go in right now to solve it or this time, actually, is it best for her if we wait? But whatever we do, there isn't a moment that we don't see her, watching her, even her crying with a tender love. See, God sees He saw Elijah's every moment, even if Elijah didn't realize it. And God sees you, even even when you're in the darkness. But There's yet one more aspect of God's tender care when we're in our hour of darkness. Because God not only sees us in our despair, God knows what it's like to be in the trough of sorrow. 700 years before Jesus Christ was ever born, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah about what his son would be like. In Isaiah 53, we get one of the longest descriptions of what the coming Christ uh, would be like. And here's how he is described. It says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. The phrase familiar with pain stood out to me. In our darkest hour, we approach a God who is familiar with pain. God sent Elijah an angel, but he has sent us his own son counselors tell us that one of the best things that you can do for someone who's going through deep pain and grief is what they call the ministry of presence. You simply show up and you're with them. You don't give them easy answers. You don't try to even say anything much. You're just there with them and your presence alone means the world. At our lowest moments, in our deepest pain, in the trough of sorrow, we can be assured that Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, is with us. Whether we feel it or not, it is true. After all, Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. He doesn't berate us for his pain. He offers the ministry of his presence. The angel had told Elijah, the journey is too great for you. The journey is too great for us. But it's not too great for him. 
It was Christ who said, never, never, never will I leave you nor forsake you. And I am with you to the end of the age. And of course, he meant what he said. Let's pray.